Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Well, happy Thursday, y'all. We've made it to March and the third of 2023's Third Thursday podcast. Uh, this is Tom Davis here, the host of Ogletree's Third Thursday Labor Law Podcast. And I want to welcome you in uh, again today and, and for March. You know, when you start to put together a monthly podcast, that, that's yet another marker for how quickly the months pass by. It seems like just yesterday that Jen Batts joined me to talk about AI in the workplace and the NLRB General Counsel's memo on that topic, GC23-02. Look, if you've not checked that podcast out, let me invite you to do so. It is an emerging area of the law and something labor practitioners are going to, to need to be familiar with. And since that podcast, we've already seen some additional activity in that space. The National Labor Relations Board, at least the GC's office, and a government entity I did, I did not know the name of, the, something called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, CFPB, they've signed uh, an information sharing agreement that furthers kind of the activity and the focus on this space. I'll leave it to you to find some media discussions about that development. But again, I want to encourage you to listen to Jen's uh, podcast from last month, very insightful. I also want to tease out a second podcast we'll be posting next week, something we frankly had hoped to get done by today. But in any event, I'm going to be joined next week by our own Tom Stanick, a shareholder in our Phoenix office. And we're going to talk about the board's recent decision in McLaren McComb, something no doubt that has hit your radar screen, a decision dealing with confidentiality and non-disparagement and maybe other things uh, in severance agreements, but certainly something in that's likely to have impact in, in other agreements and other contexts as well. And that should drop early next week. So keep an eye out for that. But today it's just me. And what I want to talk about is the representation case or our case procedural rules. I know, I know, I just heard a bunch of you change your podcast, but hang with me for a second. If you're a labor geek, you follow this stuff. And there's been some recent activity involving these rules and the challenges and litigation around those rules that may have you asking what, if anything, has changed about these rules. So piecing all those changes together, uh, as we'll talk about starting in 2014, can be complicated. It's something I certainly have a challenge with. And so I thought I would do a podcast today to lay out those recent developments and, and walk you through kind of what the current state of those R case rules or the rules that are applicable if and when a petition is filed and to how that petition gets processed. And frankly, most of the confusion started in 2014. Prior to 2014, the rules were fairly clear and had been largely settled for years. But in 2014, the board started to engage in rulemaking around this topic. And, and frankly, that has politicized the process, and, and frankly, on both sides. But in 2014, and I'll use the term Obama NLRB, finalized what you'll remember as the so-called ambush or quickie election rules, finalized in 2014, became effective uh, April 14th, uh, 2015. 
And I think for the purposes of our discussion today, two things are really important about those 2014 R-Case rules. One is the changes were very significant, dramatic changes to how petitions uh, were processed. And for many of us, they were viewed, and I'll use this term, this is my personal opinion, probably unfairly protective of union organizing and unfairly restrictive on an employer's ability to respond to that union organizing. And secondly, and critical for our discussion today's, in 2014, those rule changes were finalized by what is called notice and comment rulemaking in very simple terms. The agency issues a proposed rule. Everybody gets to read it and has a period of time to file comments. The agency considers those comments, then they finalize those rules. And with only one exception, that is not a process. The, the, the notice and comment rulemaking is not something the NLRB has used much at all, and certainly not prior to 2014. And when they changed these procedural rules prior to 2014, they just changed them. But those rules were finalized in 2015 and became subject to a lot of litigation and legal challenges. But that's what we've been living with from 2014 forward, those quickie or ambush election rules. Fast forward to 2019, and I'll use the term Trump board. We now have the Trump board. And the Trump board felt like the 2014 changes went too far, that they were unfair to employers, that they sped up the election process at the sacrifice to employer communication interests, and frankly, to employee interest in just getting information to make an informed decision. So they put together their own proposed rules, and those rules did a couple of things. They changed some aspects of the 2014 version of the rules, but frankly, left some of those aspects of the 2014 rules uh, unchanged. For example, the requirement to include on the voter eligibility list available personal contact information. You had to give to the union the name, home address, but also cell phone, home phone, personal email address of any of those voters to the extent the employer had that information. Highly controversial when it was added in 2014, left alone by the Trump board in 2019, still a requirement today. Perhaps more importantly, the Trump board did not go through the notice and comment rulemaking process. They did what the board has done for for years prior to 2014, and they simply finalized the rules, made them effective, and they opted to go that route based on this distinction. If a change is substantive, if it really impacts the rights of of individuals under the National Labor Relations Act, If it's substantive, then you got to go through that notice and comment process. But if it's just a procedural change, there's no requirement to go through notice and comment rulemaking. And again, the board has changed these roles historically, believing the changes to be procedural and done it historically without going through notice and comment. So the Trump board considered all of the 2019 changes to be procedural Thus, they bypassed the notice and comment process and made the new rules effective in December of 2019. Now comes the fun part. Uh, The 2019 changes were immediately challenged in the federal district court in D.C. Lots of different parties challenged that. And on May 30th of 2020, then-judge, now Supreme Court Justice Katanji 
Brown Jackson issued a decision and she approved of some of the changes as being procedural, but she found five of the changes to be substantive. And thus she found that because the notice and comment rulemaking process had not been complied with, she stayed those five changes. So those changes never went into effect. After that decision from Justice Brown Jackson, the board moved forward with the parts of the 2019 changes that had been approved by the court. And importantly, those changes became effective May 31st of 2020, and those changes are applicable today. But with respect to the five changes which Justice uh, Brown Jackson had enjoined, that case was appealed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, And here's why you get this podcast today. On January 17th of this year, 2023, the D.C. Circuit issued a decision in this matter. And that decision, again, muddied the waters. If you, It found three of those five changes that Justice Brown Jackson had uh, enjoined. It found three of those five changes to be substantive and required notice and comment. So they agreed with the district court. And, the, and, and that means those three changes remain stayed. But disagreeing with Justice Brown Jackson, the Court of Appeals found two of those changes procedural and lifted the stay which raises this question. We now no longer have a Trump board. We have a Biden board. And the question is what the Biden board would do with those two Trump changes. And we found that out last week. On March 9th, the Biden board took action and the action it took was to rescind the three changes plus a fourth one from the 2019 rule. And let me just cover those quickly. One of the changes was when the voter list is due. Remember, once the petition is filed and the election is scheduled, the employer has to provide the union and the board with a voter eligibility list, name and home address. And that used to take, it used to have seven days to provide that list. The 2014 changes took that down to two. In 2019, the Trump board wanted to expand that to five. That remains at two. Now, if you have a petition and if you have to file a voter list, you have to do it within two days of the finalization of the election details. Second aspect that the Biden board is moving to rescind is a proposal to delay when a regional director after an election can issue certification of the elections and in particular certification of a union if the union wins. And the question is, Should they issue that certification, which creates the obligation to bargain theoretically, should that certification issue, if the employer is still appealing, the underlying election? And the the 2019 board changes tried to say, no, we should delay the issuance of the certification. That was found to be substantive. It has stayed and is going to be rescinded. So the quandary now is that Even if an employer is appealing the election details, the certification of results in a lost election are going to issue and you're going to be faced with that conflict of do I meet the obligation to bargain or do I continue to appeal? Third, there was a proposal to limit who can be an election observer selected by the union. Who gets to sit in the room when employees get to come vote in order to 
assist the board agent in conducting that election. And in 2019, the Trump board wanted to change that rule to say it had to be, should be a bargaining unit member, but if it's not a bargaining unit member, it should at least be a current non-supervisory employee of the employer. It seems to make sense. And yet that was found to be substantive. That change will not go into effect. And the impact of that is that now unions are able to pick basically whomever they want, even non-employees and even union staff members could be observers in an election now under pre-existing law that is not going to be changed by the the 2009-19 changes. And finally, the board is also seeking to rescind a rule that required ballots to be count to be collected but impounded, not counted, while an appeal is going on. So now I think in most cases when votes are cast, they're going to be counted fairly quickly after they are cast. So all of those 2019 changes never went into effect, uh, have been stayed by the 2020 decision from the district court, and have now been stayed and looks like they will be rescinded after the Court of Appeals decision. But remember I said the court cleared the way for two of the 2019 Trump board changes to go into effect. One was creation of a right in most cases to have disputes about who is eligible to vote and the scope of the bargaining unit to have disputes about that fundamental question resolved pre-election. Under the 2014 rule, those disputes were to be typically resolved post-election, right? As crazy as that sounds. The Trump board tried to change that. The Court of Appeals has found it to be procedural, and so the, the board could move forward with implementation of that. And then a second rule change was to create a 20-day waiting period following when a regional office directs an election and when that election can be scheduled and held. Basically, a period of time for the parties to file an appeal if they choose to do so. And the Trump board changes in 2019 wanted to create that 20-day period basically to replace a 25 to 30-day time period, which had been eliminated by the Obama board rule changes in 2014. So while the court's decision cleared the way for those two changes from 2019 to be implemented, the Biden board has decided to delay, at least until September 10th, the effective date of those changes. And I think it's unlikely we'll ever see those changes occur. So the bottom line, guys, the $24,000 question, what has changed about these representation case rules after the Court of Appeals decision issued in January? I think the answer is largely nothing. Uh, Certainly, if you've handled a petition since May 31st, 2020, uh, when the last of those 2019 rules became effective, I don't think anything has changed as a result of the recent Court of Appeals decision and how the NLRB is going to handle that decision. And I suspect none of the remaining six changes from 2019 will ever become effective, at least not while the current NLRB is in place. So the bottom line is this can be extremely confusing, but I think we've resolved all of the litigation around both the 2014 and 2019 rule changes. 
And today we essentially operate under a combination of the rules from the 2014 ambush or quickie election rule changes. For example, in 2014, the rules changes created an obligation to file a statement of position if the employer wants to go to a hearing and challenge aspects of the union's petition. That was created in 2014. It's still a requirement in 2023. And to file with that statement of position, various lists of employees to file those things much earlier than was required prior to 2014. That's still a part of the rules. And also the presumption that voter eligibility disputes will be resolved after, not before the election. I think that part of the 2014 changes are are still uh, upon us today. And then finally, that controversial obligation to include with the voter list and to provide to the union available personal contact information, home phone number, cell phone number, personal email address, again, was added in 2014, was not changed by the 2019 amendments, is still a part of our obligations today. But we also operate with certain modifications from the 2019 amendments. One is the date that the post-petition hearing will be scheduled. In 2014, under the ambush rules, they tried to crunch that down to eight calendar days. Now we get 14 business days. And so it elongates a little bit that uh, effort to make these into ambush or quickie election rules. There's uh, the date to post and distribute electronically the notice of petition for election. That's five days instead of two, as had been contemplated by the quickie election rules. The statement of position requirement uh, that was created in 2014, as I said, is still there. But now the petitioner has to file a responsive statement of position. Likewise, the initial statement of position was due in eight business days under the 2019 changes, not seven calendar days, as was created in the 2014 rule changes. There's also the reinstatement that uh, came about in 2019 of the right in most cases to file a post-hearing brief. We still have that right. And perhaps most importantly, when you count any of these time limits, you now use business days. So we exclude uh, weekends and federal holidays, not calendar days, which converts, frankly, an unreasonably quick time frame created by the ambush election rules in 2014 into a still quick process, but one that's more reasonable for employers to respond to. And finally, after all the litigation, the voter list still remains due in two days after the election details are finalized. This is a reduction, again, from seven days prior to the ambush election rules. And two days is a very quick turnaround and something uh, every employer needs to plan for because collecting that information can be so complicated and time-consuming. And then finally, the regions are continued to require to schedule the election as soon as practicable. An unprecise standard, but one that pushes along this process as was contemplated by the 2014 changes. So look, the litigation around the board's 2019 R case rule seems to have come to an end. But the result, I think, is no change from what has been in place at least since June of 2020. 
So if you've done a, a handled an election since June of 2020, I don't think there's anything that has been changed. The caveat I would give you is, you know, be aware that many of the summaries of these rules that you can read on the internet are wrong. Oftentimes they pick from parts that were maybe in a rule, but have been stayed and they don't always uh, get that right. I think there's even some inaccurate information on the NLRB's website that kind of conflates some of these rules and the intricacies about the litigation that I've just described. But the bottom line is the best place, I think, to figure out the current rules is to look at the NLRB forms that are used in processing a petition. When a petition is filed, the NLRB sends out a set of rules that lay out very precisely all the things that have to happen. That's accurate, and you can download that form off the NLRB's website. Or you can always check with your favorite Ogletree lawyer. We'll be glad to to give you some insights. So thank you guys for indulging uh, me in trying to lay out all these changes to the R case rules. I think it can be complicated to put it together. But that's uh, it for me on March 16th, 2023. But as I said, be on the lookout early next week uh, for a podcast discussing this high profile McLaren McComb decision that I think you'll all will want to take a look at. Uh, Have a, a great rest of the week and a great weekend. And we look forward to hearing you and seeing you again on a future podcast. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.